0: Welcome to TFM's local watering hole for all things geeky, I am just one of your hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and with me, as she is almost every single week, the one, the only,
1: Christy Morris. I'm back, I'm ready to play some pipe organ and take a deep dive into something cool.
0: Oh, ooh, ooh, sounds good to me. Oh man, well I've got a whale of a tale to tell ya. You. Oh, you do? A whale of a tale or two.
1: Is yeah. it true as your tattoo? It,
0: oh, I guess not, because I don't have a tattoo. So, (laughs) kind of makes it difficult to tell the story. But, um, no, we're going to have some fun. Uh, Obviously, as everybody knows, um, you know, it's been difficult to get to the movie theater. Because, well, many of them have been closed. And there haven't been really any new movies coming out. Uh, And so, uh, we're going to go back in time. I'm really excited to do that with uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea from disney and uh this is yeah this is gonna be fun it kind of uh and you know we we did the same thing with with sammy robinson which i thought was a a real joy to be able to do and so yeah going back to 1954 um but um christy did you know that we got a a new star rating and review over there on apple podcasts (gasps) we did yeah we did uh this one uh says Follow the Bat-Signal no longer. This is the podcast you're looking for. They gave us five stars, and it's from Hashtag Another Happy Landing. Um, And they said, this is an amazing show covering all things nerdy. Matt, gotta say, you turned me around on the DCEU. I watched the extended cut of Batman v Superman and loved it to death. And I also love Justice League and love Star Wars and Marvel and all the other stuff. Sometimes I listen to the reviews of stuff. I know I'll never watch just to hear you and the other hosts go on about it. Well, thank you so much. Another happy landing. We're glad that you're listening and enjoying the show. And um, man, to hear that I changed somebody's views on uh, Batman v Superman, I could not be happier.
1: As if you needed more ammo. I know. I'm just saying.
0: I'm right. You're wrong. <laughs> but thank Other people you. Are wrong. Thank you for the, the review. All people are wrong that don't like it. Anyway, um, but thank you <laughs> all to the, to the people who, uh, you know, have helped us. Um, Christy, I, also, this is something that's really cool, and I really wanted to shout out to all of the listeners here um, because they made this happen. But this has been the biggest month in 602 Club history. And for the first time ever for our show, it looks like uh, we are going to break over 10,000
1: downloads in one month. That is incredible. Yeah. And I mean, especially since, you know, you just hit episode 301. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, oh, my gosh, thank you. Absolutely. So I,
0: I did. I really did want to say a huge thank you to everybody um, for sticking with us and listening for so long. Uh, you know, it's it's rare, I feel like, to have a, a podcast have this many episodes, but we just love doing it. And um, I got to give it to you guys. You're making it worth it with with all the downloads and listens and everything. So we really appreciate it. Um, And uh, giving us reviews on places like Apple uh, Podcasts, which if you have the opportunity, that really still it does. It makes a difference. I looked at the numbers just um, with what the uh, downloads and where they come from. And still a majority come from some part of the Apple system. And so when you give us a star rating review on Apple Podcasts, it really does make the show grow. Uh, and, but the great thing is, is these days you can get podcasts anywhere, and we're on every platform from Spotify to Amazon Music to everything that you can find podcasts under. So. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you're listening so you get the show as soon as it drops. I uh, want to say a huge thank you, to to our associate producers here through Patreon. Um, and I wanted to, to mention Patreon specifically. You know, Trek FM is a huge network, and we can't put shows out like this without you. Um, and uh, in this time, we really do. I, we're in some desperate need of help. So go to patreon.com slash trek.fm. See how you can be part of our team. Uh, again, uh, the most important thing is every little bit helps, but we do have some great contribution levels that you can give at. Uh, and so, again, that's patreon.com slash trek.fm. Of course, you can find us on Twitter at the 602 Club. You can also find us on Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. So please follow us uh, on both places. We're really enjoying uh, interacting with everybody and growing the show uh, on Twitter now that we've got our own uh, places for people to actually follow us. So, um, all in all, I would say that I just, again, huge. Thank you, Christy. And I really appreciate it. We, we love, um, all of you guys, uh, for listening. And, uh, again, you've just made this, uh, the biggest month we've ever had. And so we really appreciate it. Um, Christy, this, uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is a classic tale. Uh, of course, you know, uh, it's all based off of Jules Verne's book, uh, from 1870. And quite an, an an incredibly inventive book, uh, and and obvi- obviously one that really predicted a lot of the things we take for granted now, um, technology wise. And so, uh, I was wondering, <laughs> is this one that
1: you have ever read before? I've still actually never read the book. I don't know why. I feel like it's one of those things that you just, I guess, pop on the list of, oh, these are classics. I need to get around to probably.
0: No, I can understand, and I mean, I I still have plenty of books on that list that I'm trying to make my way through, too. So um, mm-hmm. this this is one that I have read, and I'm always glad that I did. And I, I've actually been meaning to, to go back and reread it. In fact, we did, like, one of those, like, um, Yankee swap-type things, you know, uh, for Family Christmas the other year, um, a few years back. And I actually got a really nice copy of this book. Uh, in mm. that um, and so I'd love to go back and reread it but if you if if anyone listening has never read it it's really an interesting book uh, it's fascinating um, it's really well written Jules Verne um, just it has a great style and it really is it's it's totally a book that's you know like worth going back to so um, but I think it you know this movie is not in many ways is like the book in the sense that it's important because aesthetically it's one of the first times it's actually the kind of the precursor to what has become so popular i mean we both have been to dragon con before and steampunk is huge uh Mm -hmm. these days especially and this is really something that kind of helped launch that whole uh aesthetic because of the of what they do with the design work in this movie
1: right and it's about how steam powered things still existed <laughs> but then also with like the nautilus the huge advancements some people made but still looking like it was something that was an older antique kind of thing um i like that they show especially in the movie the disparity between current technology in general in the world and then compared to like what captain nemo did with the nautilus
0: yeah no i i think you're absolutely right and and uh, again like the very definition of of steampunk having more advanced technology that still is made with old school materials you know right Uh, and so yeah i i mean i think this is a a classic story um, not only in book form but I think in movie form and and part of that has to do with the impact that both have had um, in their their areas and and I think you know it's so cool that a book that would have been considered science fiction obviously at one point, um, a majority of the things that that you know he talks about and comes up
1: with become reality so that's really neat right I mean like even if you think about just the um, aside from the aspect of submarines and everything, but also just him having those viewing portals. I, I think now of, like, the hotels where you've got the underwater hotel room. Yep, yep. You know, he had all of these fancy furnishings and his pipe organ in there. I mean, he spared no expense. That is...
0: This is true. This is true. Uh, you know, if you're going to build a submarine, Christy, uh, I think one should spare no expense, so... Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It's kind of like... uh What's his face? Opening Jurassic Park, you know, you you spare no expense. So yeah, um, well, I I think it's this movie is really fascinating because, and of course, a a lot of it straight from the book. But you know, I I I think the plot is is um, there's something about setting a a movie in this time period, and of course, you know, the books written in this time period, so it makes sense to to that they didn't really move um it, but there's uh, what I love about this this time period is there's still so much of the Earth that we have know very little about, right? There's still many mm-hmm. places that haven't been discovered yet, and and so I think you know the whole plot of the movie of having like a sea monster, what people think of uh, is is a sea monster attacking ships in the Pacific, uh, and then the South Pacific uh, makes kind of complete sense you know um and i think it's still a story that that really works when you know you're set in a place where we're not supposed to know everything i mean we don't have satellite technology and all that stuff so i I, that's one of the things as i was re-watching this movie um i was really struck by is 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 how well um it it works as a plot still
1: Right, because I mean, obviously, all of the things we use now are based on something. Mm -hmm. And so getting to be reminded about how navigation used to work on a boat, you know, I mean, you had to know how to chart the seas and like they were even saying divided into squares or whatnot. Um, I think that seeing those things before we had all the modern stuff keeps it grounded in that way of, Mm -hmm. you know, showing where we came from and that it's still the best way of doing it even if we've made it an easier way right well and
0: and it's really i i I mean i liked how the the you know the whole story comes together you know you have all of these ships that are being attacked and and you have this professor uh anorax uh and his assistant who are trying to get to the far east and the only people that will take them turn out to be this this navy vessel Who's going to investigate these claims of there being a sea monster? Um, and um, they're joined, you know, by this this cocky harpooner Ned Land, who's there just in case they actually run into a sea monster. And mm-hmm. what I kind of love is just, you know, the way the story progresses from that. It's 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 not unexpected, but I think again, um, I I just like how it works, and and part of this is that we find that it's no accident in the end that their ship specifically was attacked because Nemo has plans for Anoraks. Like, he has a desire for him to be there. He has a reason for him to be there. Uh, And so him surviving Mm -hmm. and everything as well is not an accident. Um, And so I think that makes it really interesting because, you know, honestly, this movie becomes about unraveling the mystery of... This ship, but also this very mysterious character uh, and I I would say very complicated character of of Captain Nemo.
1: Oh, absolutely. And and even morphing from being a story you think about a monster to talking more about humanity and about what is a justifiable means to an end or not, Mm -hmm. I think... It's really crazy how much the story develops into such a bigger character study than just mm-hmm. about submarines and sea monsters yeah. and ships and stuff. Absolutely.
0: Well, and but, I I would as you said that it just clicked in my brain. Duh, this whole movie is about who's the monster. Amen. You know, like that's yep. you, you nailed it. Like that's, <laughs> but, and it makes it so fascinating. I mean, and, and we have seen, you know, obviously movies and, 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 um, books have been asking that question for a long time. Uh, this idea of that there, you know, is, is humanity really the monster. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, uh, that is fascinating here because, as we you know dive into the character of nemo and I, it's definitely a good thing a good time to talk about him because his character is all based on his experience of the pain and suffering that he's gone through and his response to that and um mm-hmm. And and I thought that that was really fascinating because that's where we connect then that idea of who's the bigger monster or who is the monster. You know, is it this what he calls this hated nation um, or is it him? You know, has he turned himself into the monster and or has he maybe turned himself basically into the thing he hated?
1: And you realize that it's a complicated question that right. I think really like everybody who watches this may have a different opinion, but I think that they show you when you first meet Nemo, all you're seeing is that he's this ruthless person that feels like if you're, you're not of use to him or you're going to try to escape that he's just going to kill you, you know, leave you to drown in the ocean. But the more that you watch him, you do It doesn't excuse it to me, at least I see what you think, but we're probably on the same page, but um, it, it at least helps you understand him more and where he, how he got to those conclusions, especially when you hear about how, you know, his um, wife and daughter were tortured to get information out of him. Um, I think though, it still shows you that it, there's no reason then to condemn all of humanity for the acts of a few people.
0: Yeah, I mean, his story, as you mentioned, is pretty awful. I mean, he's sent to this penal colony uh, called Rurapente, which is great because they use that in Star Trek Six. That's the name of the Klingon <laughs> penal colony. Um, so I love uh, remembering that that's where they pulled this from. Um, and, you know, they escape, and then they end up creating the Nautilus. Um, and it's... We find out that also his his son and his wife have been tortured, um, because
1: oh sorry I thought it was daughter. Uh,
0: yeah i i I think I think it's son, but maybe yeah I can't uh, wife and child. Yeah, that's a good question, but um, regardless, they are tortured to death because he won't give them the secrets of his creation, mm-hmm. and so. He allows, you know, his hatred and his vengeance to just consume him. And and I think, you know, that question we we're kind of looking at of, like, who's the monster, I, I think,
1: to me, in the end, they both are, right? hmm Right, because it, he was punished for something he, you know, was just trying to protect people from, by then, this happening to his wife and child, and then humanity is terrible for putting people in these kind of places in the first place and for doing that to his wife and child and mm-hmm. you know he thinks that the solution then is to just leave society and live in the Nautilus with the other people from the colony um but I mean. It sh- it's shown throughout the many ships that he ends up coming across that they're never going to stop coming. He can't really ever escape, even though he feels like he has.
0: Well, and, and too, like, you know, he's, he's actively going after people and sinking them too, you know? I right. Mean, so, um, and then on top of that, you know, it, there is this idea that he's kind of like removed himself by the world. Um, But in doing that, he's, as you mentioned earlier he's become cold you know he Mm -hmm. is somebody who wouldn't probably have saved ned but ned saved him and there's um he's really a an anti-hero who who has really in many ways become amoral um and become Mm -hmm. a code all his own which you know is, is a dangerous place to be in response to the the evil things that have happened to him but i mean the question becomes does I mean do two wrongs make a right and and that's really where we come down to is we we see here that this is this is not the way to solve the problem because anyway in in many ways he's perpetuating a system that he hates by mm-hmm. just you know sinking ships that come across their path um and I think right Yeah, that it's just really fascinating. Um, It's it's it makes you think really deeply about these things. And I I think that's one of the things that's so fascinating is that um, it becomes about how would how should we respond to to the evil that happens to us? Do we respond in kind or not? And it's it's a great question, especially when, you know, super evil things have happened to you. Mm -hmm. Um, But does it really make it better? And I think we see in this movie, obviously, it just doesn't.
1: Right. And then by contrast, you see, like you were saying, um, Ned Land, save him from the monster, save Nemo, when he had no good reason to. But it just shows that there are two different kinds of people. There's people that believe that all life is sacred and they, they would save someone no matter what they did because it's the right thing to do. Or there's people like captain nemo who think well if i need to kill some people to make the greater good happen then i'm going to continue destroying ammo ships because i'll save other people right and it's like yeah but you're still killing the innocent people on that ship right well and
0: and and what's so fascinating like he doesn't really seem to it's not necessarily in the name of the greater good it's almost just because they deserve mm-hmm. it, you know, because they're part of this other system that helped, you know, he thinks kill his, his wife and child when, mm-hmm. you know, and, and this is one of the things that's really interesting about that, because on the other side, you have the professor uh, who is trying to get him to see how his, his inventions could make the world a better place. And you know, of course, Nemo can only see the danger involved. And I think one of the most interesting things about this is that in the book, it's battery power that the, the Nautilus runs off of, but here it's atomic power. And so I think you know, obviously, this being made in the 50s, right at the the height of the atomic age, you have that question, right? Of it, what do we do with this power? Are we are we ready for this power? You know, um, and mm-hmm. so uh the responsibility of, of how we use something as deadly as, as atomic power is a is a huge question. And and yet you you have the other side, you have the professor saying, like, this could help make the world a better place if if we shepherd it correctly. And you know, uh and Nemo can't see that and doesn't want to see it because all he sees is that they turn it into another
1: weapon, which you know, the the problem is, is he's not actually wrong. Mm-hmm. It, you know, I, but I think, too, it raises the question of, is anything like that that's a new frontier always going to be a toss-up risk like that? Mm-hmm. You know, is the good it could bring or the bad it could bring worth the risk of disseminating that information? So, you know, I, I think that it's the same thing as if you think of other modern things that we've come up with technology wise, um, you know, like genetic manipulation or um, growing tissue to help people, you know, replace body parts and things. It's that question of are we taking on more power than we can control? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I think that's a really excellent point. And it, you know, you can see the professor constantly trying to play that line of not crossing too far with Nemo to make him change his mind about showing him everything, but still wanting to have some influence to say, look, this can do good things in the right hands.
0: One of the things that I was thinking of is that what we see is he's there. There is a sense to to which, you know his critique of society is is again it, this is what makes him so fascinating is, is there are things that he's right about you know and 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 the society he sees is one that has not turned its attention towards uh scientific exploration and you know uh discovery of uh, you know great things which he has done you know I, Mm-hmm. One, the the discovery of atomic power with the Nautilus, creation of the Nautilus in the first place, as well as, you know, the way in which he has so beautifully found a way to coexist with the environment that he lives in. You know, with, mm-hmm. uh, you know, harvesting on the ocean floor and all the ways in which they've ingeniously found different, you know, food supplies and, you know, different farming Substituted techniques. Substituted seafood. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, so there is, I, I think, something to be said for that. And I was even thinking about, um, you know, the beauty of the space race in the '60s is what led to all the technological advancements that we have now, mm-hmm. and how quickly things changed because of of uh, what we were doing. And I'm consistently reminded of this idea of from movies like this and all the way to like, you know, newer movies like Interstellar of how our lack of concern and desire to explore is hurting humanity because we're just becoming so insular in and of ourselves that we forget to look up, we forget to wonder, we forget to like reach for the stars and like how those. Big um, desires have been squelched, you know, and it's just led us to do nothing but fight amongst ourselves and look for cooler phones to keep our attention. Right, and, and so I, I really appreciated how you know this movie, even from nineteen, you know, fifty four, still had an element of that um, of like, what are we looking towards? What are we doing? What are we doing with our time, you know? Um, are we just using it to, to create wars? Or are, we f- are we using it as a way to make not only the world a better place, but discover more about the, you know, the planet we live on and the universe we live in?
1: Yeah, I think that that's something they show, too, a lot with the filming even of the movie. The movie itself, they spend a lot of time showing you everything they're doing underwater. And I, I'm glad that you brought that up because there is like that sense of wonder showing the good side of what Captain Nemo is doing and, you know, showing that all of these things are possible, like replacing lamb or beef with different seafood dishes and using things that you find in different ways. Um, And I like that they even show that he finds all of this other treasure and to him it has no value at all because right. what is that compared to all of this so yeah i i think watching it just even for that is such a positive thing because it does remind you how much mm. there is that we don't understand
0: yeah i mean because it is about it is about existence right like it's about survival it's about um living in like with with nemo he 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 has found his kind of way to kind of live in harmony with uh his surroundings you know and and doing that mm-hmm. uh in a beneficial way in a responsible way you know those are all great things and like honestly when i think about you know um even just for me spiritually i feel like that's um something humanity has been called to. It was our first job, which was to take care of the world we've been given. Right. So, you know, Nemo mm-hmm. is actually doing a great job of that. What he's not doing a great job of as we talked about is the relationships between people. And, uh, and so I, I just, I really love that this movie is so complicated with this character. um, And it gives us, I think a, a real ability to be able to, have sympathy towards the character but at the same time also revile against the character as well where we should and and I love that we play with that in this film and I think um just casting wise James Mason does a phenomenal job as that with Captain Nemo playing that very cold kind of calculated mind um and yet Then he also has that vulnerable moment where where he's with the the professor and he talks about what had happened you know to his um, his wife and his child and it's just I think he really it's an iconic role to me you know he really pulls off this antihero almost villain super well.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, he stands out. I I think he and Kirk Douglas as Ned Land to me are the two that I remember more than anything else. And I mean, obviously, they want to but um, I think that especially the scene where you can tell that, even though Captain Nemo's made the decision to destroy these ships by crashing into them, that he is taking it seriously. You know, it's like you can see there's more complexity there than just determination to kill people. It's uh, sort of a sadness, but also feeling like it's something he has to do. That you just feel sorry for him. Right. And and I think, too, you know, the way that they interweave music in this movie, mm-hmm. um, which we'll get to, shows that, too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean... Um, I think you're absolutely right. That the choice of him playing Toccata and Fugue and uh, and D minor, um, you know, shows the torturedness of his soul. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, the the choice of music there. And in fact, that being the song that he plays all the time, it lets you know just how uh, much turmoil that he's in. You know, because that song kind mm-hmm. of has this feeling almost of like bubbling lava. And so, yeah. I think, I mean, you were, we were talking about that even, you know, before we started um, recording and you had mentioned that. And I just think absolutely that it's one of those places where music plays a really important, uh, music plays a a key role in helping you understand the psyche of a character.
1: Yep. Yep. I think we're both on the same page with that one, for sure. And and then even, too, you know, just the little things with music in this movie that were more funny. Um, you know, we were joking about um, Whale of a Tale. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was trying to remember the name. But it's also just so catchy. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, it's funny, you know, that to think that that was written for this movie, and um, no, no, absolutely, and, and Kirk Douglas performing. I mean, you know, I think Kirk Douglas is is great in this role, and it's what's fascinating to me too to see is that you know Kirk Douglas is a is a pretty big deal by this point, and this movie is is more of an ensemble between four different main characters, uh, oh, three really, but um, you know, he definitely doesn't get to be the focal point every every waking moment of the movie and so uh, but I think they picked just somebody who he has the personification you need for this character you know I, I think it's the it's it's like Kirk Douglas is Americana in this movie you know he's the mm-hmm. he's the swashbuckling hero um who probably would rather you think he has more of a dark side than he actually does right you know um and uh I I just, he he really is very good in this role.
1: And they show that he's not just this guy that only cares about women and treasure, but that is actually a genuinely good person and is seeing what's happening. And I like that they make him the character that realizes what's going to happen to them and, you know, is trying to warn the professor and his assistant that this is not a guy that you need to befriend. (laughs) he's like you know he's gonna what he said something like he's gonna feed you um treats all the way to the end yeah yeah absolutely. and it's like yeah you're eating out of his hand and then before you know it you're dead and he's like so in the meantime i'm gonna come up with a plan <laughs> and and then he ends up being the one to kind of save the day so i think that it's It's also interesting to seeing Kirk Douglas when he's really in his prime and not, you know, later years, which is what I'm more familiar with.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, I, I do think that this is what's fascinating is because he's not quite right about Captain Nemo. Right. Because what we learn is that Nemo actually his desire with the professor is that he he had hoped that he could possibly be a bridge. To the rest of humanity, mm-hmm. finally, um, and so uh, and, and, and the problem is is that Nemo keeps going back and forth in his mind on whether or not this is actually going to be possible. You know, can I actually give right. humanity these secrets yet? And so um, and I think Kirk Douglas's character, Ned, just realizes the ultimate danger that they could be in though, if that doesn't pan out, basically. Um, Mm -hmm. and what the professor hopes basically won't pan out. And I thought, you know, um, uh, Paul Lucas does a really good job of the professor of being somebody who's trying to, and in many ways he's, he's approaching Nemo as a scientific experiment. Like he wants to know about this character. He wants to know what makes him tick. He wants to know. Uh, You know, how he's come up with these these scientific ideas because he has that scientific curiosity, which Nemo has kind of been looking for some uh, almost a kindred spirit to to, mm-hmm. you know, build a bridge with. And yet, unfortunately, they also have this vast difference of one still has a moral compass and the other one really doesn't.
1: Yeah. And the poor professor keep thinking that he's going to turn him. And then ultimately, Nemo's anger gets the best of him.
0: And I think, uh, the, uh, you know, the the actor, uh, Lucas, does a good job of just portraying all of those things. Um, and I think one of the things that, that they did well with the casting here is that everybody is really watchable on screen. You know, like um, I've loved James Mason for a long time. He was in North by Northwest, a Hitchcock movie. That's one of my favorites. Uh, and then mm-hmm. Peter Lorre being, um, you know, the uh, the professor's assistant um Kinselle, I, I think is fantastic because he was in Casablanca and uh, he's just a f- he's a funny character. Of course, he plays kind of the, the side character in many of the roles that he's in. Um, but I also uh, appreciated that, you know, he is a character who, much like Ned, you know, for a while he's on the professor's side but he is somebody who begins to see the danger more and more um and i think you know it it creates that tension well to have a character like him um and just just what peter Lorre can do to really make the struggle between nemo and the professor even more difficult because you know the professor has somebody who's really close to him that begins to see things um, becoming much more dangerous than I think even maybe the professor wants to admit. You know, so I, I yeah, I thought that, again Peter Lorre is just great. I, he in anything he's done, I've seen him in is he's he's great.
1: Yeah, I like that too. They have a uh, several scenes here where his character Kinsale comes across as even kind of slimy and playing both sides because, you know, you see when he and uh, Ned land go diving with the rest of them that they end up going off and finding treasure. And then later he's trying to act like he wasn't looking for treasure at all. He was just exploring. (laughs) Of course, Ned's like, excuse me.
0: Yeah, and, and no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, he plays the character who's kind of riding the coattails of the professor, you know, and mm-hmm. and but also looking for his. Um, he's looking for his in, you know, he, he's looking for a way to uh, make his own mark. And so, right. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. And and Peter Lorre is definitely very good. Again, in Casablanca, he plays a character that has some similarities with this kind of like swarminess and sliminess that um that is endearing in some ways and like creepy in others and he's just very good at playing that type of role so Mm -hmm. um so you know this is a this is a movie that is full of groundbreaking special effects like uh, the this movie won an oscar for best art direction and special effects um it's one of the first movies that was shot with a cinemascope lens which was a new lens at the time it's not often used anymore because there are other lenses that have replaced it but that really gave it a full vibrant picture and man i i do have to say you know rewatching this we watched it on disney plus so we got a 4k tv at home and mm-hmm. but this movie still looks really
1: good right especially the underwater scenes that yes. that to me yep. stole the show i mean every time they open the window to look out or you know showing them farming under the water or wearing the ridiculously primitive scuba suits um you know now looking back but you have to start somewhere i think that it it definitely shows that there's so many things about it that were ahead of its time and even though to us at this point it the monster at the end looks a little ridiculous and i think we know that squids are not going to just seek people out and attack them like that it's or
0: submarines
1: yeah <laughs> and and keep coming even though yeah. they've been shocked <laughs> um i think that it's definitely visible that the special effects the the way that they shot it and everything make it look so good for nineteen fifty four.
0: Well and I think what I was really interested in is, you know, learning that they reshot the scene with the big squid fight because they had done it just in a s in a still setting. Just it you know, it wasn't raining, it wasn't darker Um, And they reshot that whole thing. And and by putting the storm in, it obviously makes it much more tense. Uh, But it also helps hide the wire work that they're using, you know, for the the squid's tentacles. And, you know, Mm -hmm. again, part of that is just, you know, you have that reality of it really being there and, you know, really wrapping around people and everything. And And, yes, there's some cheesiness to it. But at the same time, when you realize what they're uh, doing it's it's pretty phenomenal um, and you know like you said just even all the under uh, underwater scenes um, you know one of the things that you know we kind of dinged Thunderball for when we talked about it with John Champion was the fact that all that underwater work it's almost like they got so enamored with what they were doing that they didn't realize it kind of got boring but I never mm-hmm. felt like anything they were doing underwater here got boring because they were always, like, using it to show how they're, you know, doing the their underwater harvesting and all those kind of things. So they, they never went too far with it, which is, I mean, it just shows they knew exactly what they needed for this movie. And especially with the look and the feel of it, which really helps.
1: Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with that. keeping things just to the amount of time that you need to get your point across is always going to be the better way to go than just gratuitous filming of underwater. <laughs> because, yeah, at a certain point, the lighting is all the same. There's not anything super fascinating going on unless someone's getting attacked by a shark. Right. Uh, I think that they definitely did the best job of keeping it to the point.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and and one of the things, too, I I think that helps the movie is that, you know, in the book you have the the submarine which is really streamlined cigar shaped which classic you know i mean you would think of today's submarines that's basically what they are right um and Mm -hmm. so by them you know making the nautilus more ornate um and even just by the way they created it in the sense of like we said it's really a precursor to all the things we know from steampunk um it has that feel. It feels like a steampunk ship. And um, I, I think that's one of the things that really helps with the underwater scenes, too, is that the Nautilus itself is a interesting and beautiful ship to look at underwater. It's not—and there. It, they and I think they probably realized what they needed was a ship that was more visually interesting than just a cylinder— you know, running underwater because that would have been super boring.
1: Yeah, well, and even like something that would look almost monster-like because especially when it's coming through the ocean at first before you know that it's a ship, it looks almost like two glowing eyes coming in the water toward you. So I like how they did that with the lighting and the windows on the submarine to make it look kind of like it could be a monster until it's too late. And then even showing, I love that they do some shots to establish the construction yep. of the Nautilus, showing that it's like metal plates mm-hmm. and all of these giant screws and things holding it together and that it is totally um, ahead of its time as far as the other ships.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I mean... it. it and, and that all comes down to the like the very very end, you know, when they go to his mysterious island, which, um, you know, is where they built the Nautilus and kind of houses the technology that they use, and they blow it up so nobody else can get to it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you know, it it's interesting because I the way the movie ends is with the the line that Nemo says about how um, that that the technology will turn in, in God's good time, you know? Um, and again, I think mm-hmm. they do a great job of just kind of connecting all that with where people were in the 50s. But I think what makes it great is that it makes us need to look at all of the technologies that we use and how we're utilizing them and are we doing it responsibly, you know? And so, you know, when I think mm-hmm. of things like... Uh, you, the social dilemma, we're talking about social media and, and the problems we have there and lots of other technologies that we create that, that cause that can cause major issues. And I just think it's it's a timely movie still. That's what I, I was really struck by is how many of the themes are, are still important for where we are today because they're, they're important. They're questions that we as human beings should be asking all the time.
1: Yeah, exactly. I I think that's something that makes this so rewatchable. And, you know, maybe someday we'll get a sequel Yeah, to learn about the island. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But because it's got these universal themes that, that make you ask yourself those life questions. And I like how they leave it with that line hanging in the air and take a beat to let that sink in with the audience. That that's the goal of the whole movie is to make you think about how advancements are handled and how human behavior could be better and you know, how the means don't or the ends don't justify the means. All of these big things I think are the the whole reason that the movie was made in the first place or the the book was written in the first place was that Jules Verne had this idea of, how things should be. Yeah, no
0: i I think that's that's great. I'm I'm kind of wondering too. You know, as we've been talking, then what for you you would rate Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea?
1: So I think that there's just not anything that I would be able to deduct points for. So I'm gonna give it a five out of five, and uh, I'm going to give it a five out of five sea urchin cream Ooh. <laughs> sea urchin <laughs> creams yeah that looks like cream but it's made from sea urchin i don't know mm, anyway delicious. um i just thought that was so funny but it because there's so much here that we were both saying is still so meaningful mm-hmm. and yeah. that stands the test of time and is really cool to look at and has some humor on occasion, but, you know, overall has this tone of, you know, making you question things. So, and, and we've said before that we love submarine movies. So sure. <laughs> five out of five for me.
0: Yeah, I, I think for me, you know, this is definitely a four out of five squid inks. Um, I think it's, it is just, it holds up, you know, I think that's the thing. And, and part of the the reason that it holds up has to do with the, all of the themes that are still so relevant as ever, you know, for us to be talking about. And and the movie itself, I think, uh, holds up, the action holds up, and just the questions about humanity, too, and, and what do we do with the the technology we have? What do we do when we face evil? What do we do, you know, um, with all of these type of things? And I, I think it's just really, really relevant, and I always love— um, when a movie can stand the test of time like that. So absolutely worth checking out if you've got Disney+. Plus. Um, but, Christy, it's uh,
1: time, as always, as we reach the end of the show, for recommendations. Yes. So uh, I actually thought I'd do a funny one this week and go with another um, submarine movie recommendation. <laughs> I uh, It reminded me how many other movies like this that I like. And you know we've reviewed Hunt for Red October on this podcast before, but uh, I'm going to recommend Down Periscope with Kelsey Grammer. Oh yeah, because I don't know if any of you have seen it, but that's one of my favorites. And uh, going back to this kind of movie reminded me of that, and so I I just highly recommend it. It's a comedy, um, and especially you know if you like this kind of thing, um, it's going to. Make you happy.
0: Yeah. No, it's a funny movie. Really it love is it. a funny movie. Um there's another movie like that too, um, which is a lot older with Carrie Grant in it. And uh it it's called Operation Petticoat, which is a hysterical movie I grew up watching. So that's that's I would recommend that. But that's not my recommendation today, uh, even though I would say watch that. Um I just started and I'm already gonna recommend it because it's already fascinating to me. It's called The Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon. It's by James Hebert. And it is about the making of Game of Thrones by a uh, journalist who had been covering the series from the very beginning. Uh, And it is a great behind-the-scenes already. I'm in the chapter where they're talking about um, casting the series. Um, And it's just – I mean to – Regardless of how you feel about the series, what they did was just phenomenal, um, which is something that nobody thought could be done, which was to bring the series to to life in the first place. Mm-hmm. And uh it's not just that, but it's the fact that um it's a monumental achievement in uh in television um and production. I mean, they were basically putting a movie together you know every season larger than that especially by the last few seasons i mean it was like a movie every episode so um just incredible and and i love behind the scenes stuff like this um i I recently found a a book that i'm planning on reading too soon about the making of lord of the rings movies uh so i can't Mm. i can't wait i'm super i'm super excited to continue going but i'm gonna go ahead and recommend it anyway because i think it, it if anybody loved that series this would be great this it's got a ton of behind the scenes stuff in it um of course and uh there are over 50 interviews with um cast crew uh creators as well as uh, martin himself so um it's you know it's got firsthand knowledge of everything that they're talking about so great um but uh chrissy before we get out of here where can everybody find you online if they want to see what else you've got going on
1: sure you can find me on instagram twitter and tiktok at best ben bell and uh also do a couple of podcasts when i'm not here on 602 club with matt i do a show with my friend Teresa delgado called sabers and spells where we talk about other geeky stuff outside of uh just the things that matt and i usually cover it'd be more like harry potter it'd be stranger things um and then soon we might be doing some my little pony who knows um, and, uh, I also do a show called Planet Leia on the Fanthatrax network and, uh, do that with five other women from around the world talking about Star Wars.
0: Uh, of course, uh, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and Vero under the name at rushing zero two here on the network. Uh, I'm also doing literary Tracks as well as the orb, both with Chris Jones, literary treks is the books and comics of Star Trek and the orb is about Star Trek T space nine over on the nerd party network i do two shows one is called aggressive negotiations and that is with john mills it's a star wars podcast and we're of course talking about our favorite saga each and every week and then i'm also doing owl post with drea kaufman as we talk about harry potter one chapter at a time but you know what thank you so
1: much for joining us and y'all come back now you hear Thank you.